Hello and welcome to episode 273 of the Ram Nintendo Podcast. I'm Jason. I'm Angel. I am Kevin. And guys, I know you often are asking when we'll get corporate sponsors or that like Raid Shadow Legend uh, money. So I have good news and bad news. There is one company who's getting a lot of exposure in this episode, but they're not paying us for it. They're just kind of here. And I'm talking about Microsoft. Uh, they're in our news segment where we talk about their plans to acquire Activision and what it can mean for the industry, for Nintendo, for us gamers. Uh, but they're even in our What We're Playing segment because we've got impressions of The Artful Escape, which is an indie that was an Xbox exclusive until this past Tuesday. And we have uh, impressions of the, the how I word this, the, I guess, notorious Nintendo turned Microsoft trader that is Banjo Kazooie, which is now back home inside Switch Online's expansion packs. We're going to be re- revisiting that. Um, but really, the whole thing is just kind of a Microsoft takeover in more ways than one. Um, and that's why we're calling this episode exactly that. Timestamps for it are, as always, available on the blog post at ramtown.com. But before we get to any of those Microsoft shenanigans, Kevin, Mr. Kingdom Hearts that you are, um, there's Kingdom Hearts news that I feel like we have to discuss, at least a little. Uh, Never first have off, to discuss Kingdom Hearts news, okay? <laughs> well, first off, um, just to put it out there for everyone, if you don't already know, on February 10th is when all the Kingdom Hearts are coming to Switch in cloud form. Um, what's kind of interesting is they're actually making a bundle now, so if you don't want to buy the three compilations, you can buy a compilation of the compilations, which is, I feel like, the most Kingdom Hearts thing ever, but it's called um, Integrum Masterpiece. It's going to go for 90 bucks on the eShop, all cloud-based, but... If you pre-order now, it's only $72. So that's a lot of Kingdom Hearts for only a little more than the price of a full game. Uh, but the the other thing they announced that I just – I'm curious what you think, Kevin, because everything's canon with Kingdom Hearts, right, is um, there's a hotel room. Well, it's not really announced. It's kind of revealed. But there's a hotel room at Tokyo Disney with a, uh, that's themed around Kingdom Hearts for the 20th anniversary. And apparently in that room is a chest – and in that chest is a version of a Keyblade that is different from any of the ones that have shown up in the game before. There's no Sona face or Sona. There's no Sora fair on it, like face or like imagery. There's no yellow or blue design. It's all blue. And people are like, "Is this an upgrade that hasn't existed yet? Is this for a different character?" And you're not allowed to take photos of it until after April 28th. So the only way to even see it and assess what it could be and how it is relevant to the Kingdom Hearts story is if you go book this hotel room. Because it is under embargo if you stay in there until the end of April. You have they to made the A if you're in there? What? You have to sign the I don't know. I don't know if everyone does, but the guy who stayed in it already, who is reporting this, had to sign an embargo. Interesting. To, of, of photos, at least. He's allowed to talk about it, which is how we got this info that, you know, there's no Sora face or whatever. But yeah, right. they made a hotel room part of the story. In a way, part of the story. Does that <sighs> surprise you? <laughs> I'm just tired. I I want to be done with this series. But it keeps <laughs> drawing me. It's like a moth to a flame, you know? It's just... It's not good for me. It's not good for my health. But that Nomura, even more than Sakurai, I curse out his name. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm you... sorry, folks. I'm hungover right now. <laughs> if, 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 if well, not, that, it's like you're 
It's like the frustration of being hung over with the frustration of this the situation. Just of really the sucked, bra. <laughs> yeah, just sucked the energy out of you. But, I, uh, I, you know, I, I got a, wonder. I took an Uber to, uh, to El Segundo, and I passed by your offices, which also houses the uh, Square Enix. Maybe this I should said that. <laughs> Maybe no, I it's fine. They're our neighbor. We, it's okay. We share a parking lot. We're not in the okay, same okay, okay. but we share a parking lot. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I just saw the, the big Square Enix logo, and I just raised my fist to it. Just went Nomura, and the Uber driver was very confused. <laughs> um, how much do I bet? Not only is this room, this hotel room, canon, but I bet something in the cloud version. They're gonna make everyone have to double dip. There's like something in it that's unique, or like there's a demo you can try right now, and like you know, put the cloud version to it, to the test. Like maybe there's something in that. Like it feels like everything they do somehow ties back. Like everything, it's crazy. Uh... Like wait, that this some somehow has to do with like a cloud version of whatever they're going to drop. No, I'm saying, I, well, kind of. I'm saying like knowing Square Enix and knowing what you've told us about how convoluted the series is, I feel like if you don't play the cloud versions, if you don't play this, you know, Integrum masterpiece or any of the pieces of it, there's probably going to be something in there that you're going to miss. It's going to be crucial to Kingdom Hearts Four or something, just because they want you know they they sucker people <laughs> into buying everything over and over and staying in uh, hotel rooms. I doubt it, but. You know, you know, you never know, actually. Yeah, I, I, of all franchises, this is the one you never know. But, but yeah, I just felt like we had to start with that, that um, the, your true uh, passion for Kingdom Hearts, shall we say. But that may be the only non-Microsoft topic of the day. Um, unless even then, like, Kingdom Hearts, like, the cloud version could be running, I don't know, on Azure servers or something for Microsoft. So maybe that's Microsoft, too. But here on out. For the rest of the show, this is kind of more of a random Microsoft show than anything else, which is funny because I think outside of the computer I use for work, speaking of my work, uh, I don't think I actually use any Microsoft products. I'm all Nintendo and Apple. Wow. You guys do, though, right? Like, I mean, you have gaming PCs at least, both of you. What? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I used to have <laughs> mainly <laughs> Apple products. I mean, I guess I started PC in college. Then, you know, I spilled soda on it, got a MacBook Pro. Then for the, I think like the next decade, I basically just had, you know, I got the iPad, iPhone. That's kind of where it stopped. I never went full Apple Watch or, well, I guess I did get an Apple TV. I guess the Apple Watch is where I stopped. But and yeah. you almost bought one. Yeah, but I already like a month ago. Yeah, about a month ago. But then um, I forgot what changed, but something changed. Oh, I realized that. Um, wow, it's funny because it was literally on the tip of my tongue. There was something. Oh, that's right. My Withings. my my Withings watch. I didn't realize that it also tracked. You know, basically like your your sleep and st- oh, no, your. I didn't realize that the Healthmate app also talked to the health app of the phone i thought it was like all my health data was just being tracked by this one app so when i realized that i'm like oh i I guess i do kind of like because i definitely preferred overall you know having an analog watch which is what i have that's still kind of like a hybrid so i did end up getting like the scan watch so now i have that pretty much i guess upgraded my watch to the next version of it and yeah got my pc so i guess i still have that that i built last years i think it's almost going to be a year old oh my god are they going to be two are you years on old? windows 10 or windows 11 at this point i'm still on windows 10 i 
think it's a free upgrade, but I'm not sure. I don't no, know. I'm actually I, not I, sure either. I mean, Kevin, Kevin are you on 11? or? Yeah, I switched over to 11. Oh, How is it? Okay. Good to know then. It is the exact same thing with the exception <laughs> of the, uh, the taskbar being centered, which I don't mind. I mean, it's very, it's very Mac OS, the center taskbar. That's how Mac's done it for years. So clearly it works because a lot of people have, have had that exact set on a Mac. So I don't get the brouhaha over it moving either, to be honest. Um, wait, Angel, you were saying you were kind of almost all Apple, but before you even had any Apple stuff, you had a Zune, didn't you? Yeah, I started with a Zune because for the same price, it was like 250 gigs versus like 16 gigs. And it was a bigger screen and it could play like, you know, it, it just seemed more versatile. And I also just liked the color options more. I ended up getting like a red one. And it was awesome. I loved the heck out of the Zoom. And the and I really loved the first version of the Zoom, Zoom OS on PC or I guess Mac. It, they eventually updated it to make it more Mac-ish. And it lost a lot of features that pretty much let you like fully customize like a lot of stuff. And then you just kind of couldn't all of a sudden. And that was kind of unfortunate. But yeah. I definitely missed the Zoom days. It's it's. I mean, I feel like someone listening is like, "Oh, that explains Angel so well. He had a Zoom. <laughs> like it's such like a set of people." But it, it, yeah, I remember it was actually kind of impressive when when uh, I messed with it back when I first start started to hang out with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess my point is, you guys have more of an affinity towards Microsoft or their products uh, than than I typically do. But here in this episode. Uh, where we're talking about what we've been playing at least, it all does tie back to Microsoft for me, which is interesting. Because you guys don't have any new games you've been playing, right? Like, it's, I think I'm the only one that has I mean, stuff. I played a little Banjo right? Kazooie on the Switch. Oh, then we could, we could talk about that when I, well, I was going to talk about Artful Escape first, but if you want, we could touch on Banjo right after, because if you want, yeah. like, I was going to bring it up. But, anyway. but no, but no new games. I mean, haven't been playing games, but nothing new. Banjo right. Kazooie included. Yeah, That's definitely uh, nothing new. But yeah. Yeah, well, it's fine because it, for me, it was the first time revisiting it since the N64, so it felt kind of... But I'll, I'll get to that. The, the first game I was going to touch on um, was perhaps, m- m- you know, the most loosely associated with Microsoft since it was actually an indie release, and that's uh, The Artful Escape. Uh, it's a game developed by an Australian studio called Beethoven and Dinosaur, which is a great name, and I love how the logo when you boot up the game is literally just a picture of Beethoven's head next to a picture of a dinosaur. So there's that. But uh, it was... For the first part of its existence, uh, like I was saying in the intro to the episode, exclusive to X- Xbox, and it just came to Switch this past week. But I'm very glad it did come to Switch because it's a game that is very much in the wheelhouse of some of my other favorite games this generation, um, What Remains of Edith Finch and Sinar Wild Hearts, perhaps famously so since they're all published by Annapurna Interactive. Um, and what I've liked about those games, and I've said maybe a dozen times on the show before, is that they lean heavily on narrative and use kind of simple gameplay mechanics to propel that narrative. You know, so there's like, they're like interactive stories as much as they're. So the less gamey it is, the more likely Jason will like it. Well, to a degree. See, this one almost goes too far in that front, is my concern. Because, like, the thing I liked about those is they're. <laughs> no, really. But the thing I like about those is, like, they are still kind of gamey, but they're like. They're story heavy, they're bite sized, so it's kind of like getting a mini series lent experience in video game form. And they also, like, use different genres to kind of get their story through. So for you, Finch, that translated into a mix of 
I don't know, let's call it first person linear exploration I mean, combined honestly, with, you know, simple mini games. Yeah. If it's, if it's not like a multiplayer game where, you know, you're actively, I think like the only games that I would still just consider quote unquote gamey would just be like platformers mm-hmm. and anything like super multiplayer, like anything else, like honestly, even any of like Sony's like first party, like, you know, Horizon and those like heavy narrative games, they're all just like interactive experiences at this point. I feel like that's almost more accurate than a game. Yeah. And and that's the, the the more they lean into that, especially when they're like the kind of bite sizing like I was saying, the more the more they seem to resonate with me. Because I mean to be fair, like, you know, I would say E. Finch is closer to the the Sony thing you're saying in terms of its its narrative and its, its experience you play. Sinar Wild Hearts kind of a high score attack arcade thing that basically was an interactive concept album, but it did very much have scores and like replayability and all that. So it was a little more gamey in that regard. Um, but here with Artful Escape, same root idea. They're just now using it as, you know, these other sort of narrative things framed within the game. It's just the framework is this story is a 2D platformer. Um, but the story itself is quite good um, and weird and pretty heartfelt in the end. Uh, but the game centers around uh, the nephew of a folk music legend who's essentially trying to find his own identity and get out from under his uncle's uh, shadow, I guess you could say. And it quickly takes the form of him, this whole process of him going on a space rock odyssey that feels kind of like a mix of a David Bowie rock opera with like a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy vibe, perhaps like a splash of the quirkiness of like, I don't know, Yellow Submarine by the Beatles or something like the the, the movie. Uh, but basically... As you go through the experience, you meet all these different aliens and dimensional beings, and it's all centered around the idea of your growth into someone who can really, like, rock the universe and be the best performer across all dimensions. And like I said, I mean, it, it's weird. It, it's kind of wacky. But really what makes it work so well, I think, <laughs> from experience for at least, is just, like, the writing and the scenarios you're put in. Like, the developers knew they had to lean as far as they could into this like absurdist mindset so they did and i think what's really neat about it is they framed the sort of like self-discovery of of the main character francis and you know what he goes through is not just like this wacky intergalactic voyage but also like the proper telling of how a musician sort of comes up like there's segments in the game when you're trying to book a gig or you're on a late night talk show or you're doing a meet and greet and all of them run parallel to francis sort of finding himself and his own worth while simultaneously happening in this weirder outer space world that they built so like story-wise vibe-wise music-wise it's all there but what i was starting to say before is where you know when you're talking about like it doesn't really need much gameplay is that's where it's perhaps a little weaker than the games you know i've been comparing it to i mean um like, what the other two games do incredibly well, I think, is, uh, at least in my opinion, is they have a simple mechanic and they build on it, right? So, like, E.F. Finch, which I know, Angel, you've played too, and I think, Kevin, you have, but everything you do in that game involves the movement of your control stick and one button press, very much like WarioWare. It's the simplest of inputs, but they get really creative in what those inputs do and what you control as you kind of revisit the memories of these Finch family members and make your way through the game, and they get kind of more and more unique as you go through. And for Sayonara, you know, it's a little more straightforward in that you're just moving, dodging, occasionally shooting and trying to get that high score. But, you know, they they do it. The twist is that the format goes from like 2D to 3D to behind the back to bigger boss fights. So it's constantly feeling fresh gameplay wise because it's literally shifting your perspective like every level, sometimes in the level where Artful Escape perhaps falters a little 
is the gameplay doesn't really like evolve in that same way. Like early on, you're introduced to three core mechanics. Uh, one is you walk around hub worlds and talk to people. The second is you do some platforming. And the third is these big concert moments. And the hubs, yeah, no one's really expecting much beyond just tapping a button to talk to people. Like that's what a hub is, sure. But on the platforming side, it doesn't really like build, I guess. Like you can move left and right, obviously, and there's some really simple jumping to do, and and there's slopes you can auto glide down, and and the one unique thing is if you hold Y as you walk around, you're shredding your guitar, and the environment around you like comes to life to the music. And actually, let me tell you, the the art direction in this game is great. Um, so even just walking around and shredding, seeing the environment react is really cool. And there's moments where you can like leak off, uh, like leap off. Uh, the auto slide ramp and like shred in midair and it just looks like you're inside like an awesome sci-fi album cover or something like the game's just visually really cool it's it's i don't usually use the word but it's, it's a gorgeous game especially if you play it on like a vibrant oled screen of some sort if you have like an oled tv or if you have an oled switch like the colors just pop but as that's all happening visually like nothing's really happening during the platforming in terms of progress like you'll see different environments but there's no real like gameplay evolution or even challenge to it there's no health there's no death system if you die you just kind of respawn right near where you were it really is just a means to an end to progress the story like you're just walking right because you're walking to the next part of the story and and the same holds true even with those concert moments which is like the other gameplay mechanic because those are basically they're kind of like simon says quick time events of sorts so basically there are five note buttons a x y r and l and every time you're in a concert there's a creature or environmental thing that somehow cleverly integrates those five, uh, the design of how they show those five note buttons into its face or into its whatever. And then those light up. And whatever lights up, you then press as well. And the evolution of the mechanic, if you will, is that initially you press one at a time, but by the end of the game, sometimes you're pressing two or three at a time. But that that's it. And there's no penalty if you hit the wrong note. It just has you do it again. And there's no score. There's no timing required to match to the music. You just hit it after they hit it. And if you do, whenever you do, it counts. Um, really, the music matches when you press it, if anything, which is kind of even how the guitar shredding works on the platforming parts, too. You hold Y, the guitar shreds. It meshes really well with the level music, but you're in control of the timing of everything. Um but also, again, like with the platforming and the concert moments, you know, they are very visually satisfying. You hit the notes, lasers shoot out, you hit certain notes in, in certain parts of segments, and the whole thing just, like, lights up, and there's extra emphasis on the on the music. It's an experience for sure, especially in how it, like, visually ramps up as you get further in the game. It's just not really a gameplay challenge, and there's no, like, gameplay ramp up, um, which is kind of how I could best summarize the whole thing with Artful Experience. is It's an experience. It's not, it's not like gameplay. It's an experience. It's an interactive one. There's arguably some light gameplay, but you're not necessarily playing this to beat a high score or like challenge yourself. You're kind of like you're saying, Angel, with the, the PlayStation stuff, perhaps. You're playing it to just be absorbed into the world, go through the story and the clever writing, and just let the like experience of it all wash over you. It's kind of relaxing in a way, honestly. It's a good sort of kickback, more passive type of game. And maybe, sure, it would have been nice if there's a little more gameplay, because even, you know, the PlayStation games, yeah, they're experiences, but they're gameplay heavy. Uh, so maybe if there's a little more gameplay that offered a little more depth, that could have been nice. And on the technical side, like, there are some moments where it stutters, you know, the performance stutters a bit, even when the Switch is docked. But I'm I'm very glad I, I checked it out still. Like, it, it resonated with me more than I thought I would. I think if enough of the concept here is of interest to anyone listening 
the $20 asking price is totally reasonable for what you get. Like the production values are just great. I mean, I didn't even touch on the voice acting, which has some heavyweights like Carl Weathers of all people and, and Jason Schwartzman. Um, oh, but even the two leads oh, who I, yeah, Carl Weathers plays like this, like rock, interdimensional rock icon that kind of is your like guiding. He sort of mentors you through. Yeah. Um, and you can, he, he is having fun with the role. He like chews up the scenes. He's having so much fun with it. But, but even the two leads who I think are relatively unknown, they, they really hold their weight too. So like overall, like it's a cool experience. It's just not as gamey as even similar light game experiences have been. So just, you know, going into that, know that going into it and you still may have a really great time because it's a very unique, very fun experience. Um, but yeah, so that's our full escape. Um, now the other game I've been playing that's Microsoft related is one we are that Angel you also mentioned Banjo Kazooie. Um, where where does Banjo? I guess for both of you guys, right? Where is it ranking your? I don't know, like pantheon of N sixty four games. Like, is it? Do you have? Is it fond memories for you? Is it towards the top? How how big is Banjo Kazooie in your life, or was it? Um, not as much as you would think in my early life because I didn't played until co- until college that was my first time actually playing it um i knew about it i always wanted to play it like i saw my neighbor play it for the first time i was like whoa what is this game that like almost immediately just looked more interesting than mario 64 um mm-hmm. it just felt like you know it just had more character which is probably an understatement because literally everything is a character in this game even like you know like <laughs> yeah. orange and like random things you collect but yeah, like it was just immediately captivating, and I knew I always wanted to play it eventually. And even like before that, like, yeah, like the music was already like kind of stuck in my head, or even the way they talk. But then when I got to play it in college, um, by interesting means, where Banjo ended up looking like a polar bear due to, I guess, compatibility or something got corrupted. But I did get to play all the way through, and I and I still really loved it. Like I felt like. I definitely had a feeling of like, oh man, where was this game my whole life? But then, yeah, like it just didn't really like leave me until I think like years later, I got another chance to play it on the N64 and then I beat it again. And then that was great. And then I started it again a couple years ago on the Xbox One because I borrowed my brother-in-law then. I didn't beat it that time. I got a little further, but that was just because there were just conflicting things going on and yeah on the switch as soon as it came out it was like oh i'm definitely playing this once i have the chance and i didn't get the chance until recently but even playing it again it's like yeah i'm not tired of it like it's like my favorite n64 game that i bit that i didn't play when the n64 was in its prime but if i'm just mm-hmm. like you know just making a ranking of my favorite n64 games i'd, I'd definitely rank it at the top for sure Ty praise yeah Kevin, did, did Banjo, was Banjo a thing in your life? Nope. So uh, I have <laughs> I have not nearly uh, the amount to say about Banjo and Kazooie as uh, Angel over here. Oh, trust me. I'll, I'll, I'll match Angel. Don't worry. Um, and you don't have expansion paths, do you? Or expansion pack for Switch Online, huh? Nope. So you can't even choose to go experience it for the first time without nope, coughing up I another totally fine with that expansion pass. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I'm guessing it's on that, maybe. Oh yeah, that's true. Is it? I 
don't know. I don't think so. It, it might oh. be there through Rare it Replay. It might be a console thing only, maybe. Like, you need it on... Yeah, I think Rare Replay didn't come out on uh, PC, so... Oh, uh, well, that's the end of that. Yeah. Fair. Well, for um, for me, um, I am kind of the opposite, Angel. I actually haven't played it since back in my N64 days on an N64, which is kind of interesting because I feel like so many of the other like cherished games of that era have resurfaced so many times over in like official capacity on Nintendo platforms, like just on Nintendo platforms alone. Even the idea of like, look, I can play an N64 game on the go now. Like that's kind of, I don't want to say old hack. That's a weird phrase, but kind of like, you know, all the way back to like the DS launch with like Mario 64 DS, you know, we saw it with Day Kong Racing on DS. We had Star Fox 64 3D and Ocarina of Time 3D and Majora's Mask 3D all on, you know, of course the 3DS. Um, we've had even on the console straight up ports of stuff like Mario Kart 64 on the Wii Shop channel or, you know, uh, you know, games that even were on those early systems but then never made it to America have since been rehashed on the later systems. Like Sin and Punishment, you know, it was never on Western N64s, but there it was with a Wii release and then a Wii U release and now part of Switch Online. So Banjo-Kazooie was kind of, and I guess all of the rare games for obvious reasons, were, was kind of the exception because, you know, Microsoft had it. So for me at least, not seeing it repeatedly pop up in my life like those other N64 games, there's this extra layer of nostalgia because it is really just working off what I remember from the N64 days. Because um, I didn't get to, you know, try it on Xbox like you did, Angel, or through your other means or whatever. So coming into the game 23, 24 years after it came out, it's interesting to now sort of assess what, for me, worked well with the game as I remember it and what sort of doesn't feel as up to par anymore because I didn't get it, I guess, drilled into my head that this is just how it plays, like other other N64 games were with their re-releases, or even, like, you know, you playing it on Xbox, I think they, like, tweaked the camera or something on there. I remember them making some changes with latency as well or something. And, and what I'm noticing as a result is that there's, like, this interesting divide between what Rare designed in the game and then the mechanics to make it happen and how I feel about those, if that if that makes sense. Like, like on the design side, everything about the game is exactly how I remember it and doesn't feel outdated. You know, the, the googly eyes all over the place, like you mentioned, Angel, the, the gibberish talking, which um, there's a lot more of it in the start of the game than I recalled. Uh, but yeah, that, you know, you mentioned that too, but the music, the setting, the, the environments being themed around, not like typical tropes, but stuff like swamps and caverns and beaches, uh, all that holds up great. And honestly, I don't know how you felt about it playing it on um, the Switch, but I thought the fact that even though it was the exact same game, but up into HD, I thought it actually looked really nice. Like, even in its simplicity. Like, it, yeah. it held up. Visual still held up. I was definitely thinking about that as I was like, you know, as the title screen was going and everything. Like, you know, it's obviously, it looks dated, but like, it wasn't something that I'm like, oh, I don't really want to look at this for too long. It's like, no, it was still, it was still charming. It looked cool. It was simplistic. Yeah, I, I do think that the googly eyes made a big difference in that regard because it kind of like makes it look like it's more of an aesthetic than a graphical limitation. But but also the level design. Like, gotta get props to the level design because this is rare, like, collectathon in its peak form. Like, the levels, they are a bit more compact than I remembered, um, but I think that kind of works in the game's favor because it actually makes trying to collect all the notes and jiggies and jinjos and whatnot per stage, it doesn't feel like very overwhelming or overbearing, which I know became an issue with later rare games for, for many. Like, there are certainly nooks and crannies to explore, and 
Rare does a good job of kind of cramming a lot of different diverse elements into these relatively small levels, but it feels like it strikes a good balance. Like this, this may be more than even Mario uh, Mario sixty four or something feels like what gave way to some degree to the nine hundred power moves in Mario Odyssey. Like this feels like this was like the hey, we could do this, but, like, bigger. And that kind of led to that. Like, I don't know. It's the whole idea of, like, the sandbox to play in. Like, something about the layout of these levels and the way they're walled in by those, like, N64 graphics for the outer walls and sky where it's just, like, these paper-thin, like, walls, essentially. It really does, I don't know, for some reason, especially with levels like Treasure Trove Cove, it really does feel like you're in a little sandbox and you're just digging around doing stuff. Like, you feel like you're in, like, a playset or something. Like, it, it works. And all that's been really fun to revisit. But... And I bet you could sense there is a butt coming on here for a while now. But my main uh, bone to pick is that, for me, the actual mechanics just aren't as good as I remember. Or more likely, my perspective is skewed because those mechanics have been approved upon so much since the N64 ga- uh, days. Like, some are little things. You know, swimming feels a bit clunky. Uh, I've had situations where I go to collect, like I said, music notes or whatever at the bottom of the water, and I can get all of them except one that I keep circling around forever, and I run out of air, and I have to go back up, and I have to go back down, and I still can't get it. And that's maybe, maybe to some degree me, but like, also if I can get the others, it's not really me. Uh, but the most notable thing for me has been the camera system and what it kind of inhibits. Like, it's no secret that early 3d platformers don't have the best cameras and you can't even you know you, you can't even expect good camera work out like mario 64 like that was a, a point that popped up a few times over with the 3d all-stars collection that the camera was kind of wonky but something about banjos has just really rubbed me the wrong way like it feels like it's a constant thing i'm fighting against you either get stuck behind things or it makes the perspective weird to the point that like messes up what I'm trying to do, like jumps or crossing small ledges, um, or it just made it more difficult than necessary to aim Kazooie's eggs when I'm trying to shoot at moving targets. And I I guess I should go into a few disclaimers as I say all this. Um, I'm primarily playing in handheld mode using the Switch Joy-Cons, not a proper N64 controller. Uh, I know you can hold R to center the camera around Banjo, although it seems a little silly to have to keep holding it down constantly for the entire game. And like I was saying before, from my understanding, and Angel, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, they do fix the camera in like the Xbox version of Banjo. It does, in the sense of it's remapped to the right stick to alleviate a lot of this because it's, you have full analog movement of the camera. Um, at least from my understanding. So this is a, a very much a problem with this specific method of playing Banjo-Kazooie. But at the same time, it's this specific method that makes me want to be replaying Banjo-Kazooie. Like, the novelty of playing Banjo on a handheld, wherever, it's just cool. It's been cool in a way that so many other first-party N64 games, all those ones I rattled off before, you know, aren't because it's old hat for them. Like, we, we've been there, we've done that. Like, case in point, um, Nintendo announced in tandem with Banjo's release, Majora's Mask is going to be the N64 game I just switched online's expansion pack for February in a couple weeks. And sure, that's cool. I bet a lot of folks are going to enjoy it. But also, like, we can play that anytime anywhere in the 3DS already, like in that version. So it's not as special, at least not to me anyway. So now I'm kind of at this weird crossroad where my lack of time with Banjo since its heyday has left me with kind of a false impression of the game within the context of, like, 2022 gaming. But the format and the method I can now play it in is compelling me to try to revisit it all anyway. So I'm like, like there's better ways to do this, but they're not as compelling. It's it's strange. It's a weird situation to be in. 
I guess. I mean, I don't know if there's ever been... Has there ever been a game that you guys have, like, this incredibly fond memory of, like I do with Banjo, and then you revisit, and it just didn't age as you expected? Not necessarily bad. Like, Banjo isn't bad, but just, like... I definitely had that with Luigi's you off guard. Mansion, for sure, but it's definitely interesting hearing... I mean, I guess it makes sense. That definitely comes with, like, not having played Banjo for you, like, all that time, because mm-hmm. all those issues you had, like, were literally non-existent for me. Like, because, you know... I think I mentioned that I basically replayed it three, three and a half times. And yeah, like, I don't know, like I just, the camera just wasn't a problem. Like you just got used to it right away. Um, I mean, I guess like, I mean, I am getting, I, but, 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 but as I'm playing it, like, I, I can but... see like, yeah, like I could see people like, I mean, the fact it's kind of inverted, like, you know, tilt the C-stick left and it'll go right and vice versa. It's almost, yeah, it's basically just inverted. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I think because it never, the controls never really left my subconscious. I just like knew how Banjo played. I knew how Mario played. I never really was trying to make Banjo feel or try to make it work like other traditional 3D platformers. Cause you know, it just stayed in its own little, I guess like save log of yeah. its controls. But yeah, I could definitely see how that could be an issue for some people just like starting it, starting out with it, especially if they have been playing, you know, newer 3D platforms as they come out like you have. But yeah, it's interesting. I did. I just didn't expect to like, I guess I just forgot because I got far in the N64 and Banjo-Kazooie on N64 was one I almost beat, which is anyone that knows me knows almost being a game is a big deal. I would have beaten it. I was at the quiz thing at the end, and then I accidentally deleted my save file when I was a kid. Yeah, and so I was in the menu. It's notoriously easy to save your save file. Like they Mm -hmm. make you mean delete your save file? Yeah, yeah, it's really easy to delete your save file in that game. That happened to my brother as well. He was close to beating it, and it's the way they ask. I think it's um when you're exiting out or when you're in the front end menu. Um, like, pretty much if you press B, it's like, are you sure you want to delete? And I think like, you'll want to press A, but I think it's B. I don't know. Something about it. It doesn't like, even, it doesn't even say, uh, delete. Yeah. No, I, I have it burned yeah, to my you're memory. Re- you're, you're definitely, it was traumatic. Yeah. It, it's kind of unfortunate, but yeah, that's definitely is like a, a definitive complaint. Yeah. That, you know, every, everyone I know that has played Banjo many times has at least deleted their save file once. Yeah. Essentially what happens is when you're on the main menu, you choose your file and you hit A or whatever. And then it says, are you sure? Or are you ready? And you hit yes. But if you hit Z, it says, are you sure? And then you hit A and you hit yes. And that's like, okay, deleted. Cause Z triggers the deletion, but it doesn't actually confirm that in the text. It just says the same thing as if you're about to start the file. That's what happens. At least from my recall, it's, you know, it's, it's painful. Um, Kevin, have you had that with the game where like you're into it at one point and then you go back to it years later and you're like, what? Like, it just didn't hit in the same way or doesn't feel up to par with the memory? Uh, Not one that I can think off the top of my head right now. I feel like most games that I've gone back to have stayed relatively... Is it fine wine? But the same quality that... uh, Oh, wait, that improved they get uh, better. I remember them in... I mean, that, that, I guess that's a good thing to not have to have experienced that. I mean, Angel, with you with Luigi's Mansion, it was what? The the visuals, right? Yeah, I remember the game looking much better than I remembered. It pretty much looked the way um, the Insane Trilogy did. Because I feel like the Insane Trilogy does like a good job of like looking the way you just kind of remembered as a kid. And just like, I mean, obviously it didn't look that good. I mean, you still remember it like, blocky. But you're like, ah, oh, yes, this is like the ideal vision I had of it in my head. 
and then you go back to it and you know crash it looks okay like it definitely has an age well but not horrible but luigi's mansion i guess because it was on gamecube and then like one of the first if not the first gamecube games that came out it was it was a launch title yep yeah like i just have this i guess vision of it looking really nice and crisp but not that it's horrible and playable but yeah my my brain like really messed with me Right. Yeah. That. I mean, that's basically you know the parallel to the cameras for me with banjo, like pretty much exactly to a T. Um, but I guess if we're if we're talking old games, maybe getting a new lease on life, like Banjo Kazooie, um, and you know other other games from our past that we revisited. Let's talk about the biggie here, the episode's namesake, the one that uh, kind of shook the industry, pending regulatory approval, of course, and that is that Microsoft plans to acquire all of Activision Blizzard and all its IPs for $69 billion. Which normally when you hear that number, the automatic response Wait, is nice. Wait, really, Where are the point two? Round up. Oh, round okay. up. <laughs> uh, I mean, some places like New York Times are reporting it at $70 million. And I just put it at 69 so I can make the joke about, you know, people would say, oh, that's nice. But in this case, is it nice that they're buying Activision Blizzard? But anyway, no, like... like it's it's sixty eight point seven technically sixty nine if you want around to make a nice joke seventy if you're the New York Times really what it boils down to is the largest all cash purchase of any company in any industry and it is uh seven or sorry not seven eight billion more dollars than what Nintendo's entire market cap was on the day this acquisition was announced so yeah I it's, wonder um, if it's ever like. billion or whatever. I wonder if it's always like on the dot. Like, I wonder if like there's some pennies thrown in there. Like, oh, you know, it's like 68. It's a good question. I would love to see that as well. Like 33, like 33 cents, you know, like Like they actually get it. I I don't even know how they, I don't even know how they calculate. I know if they do like stock buying, it's based on the stock price. And obviously the perceived value company is based on the stock price too. And those do get into decimals. But yeah, yeah, I wonder if like so. on the contract it's sixty nine comma like two hundred eighty two comma one hundred thirty three comma you know like it yeah, yeah. that'd be interesting. We we should uh, ask uh, Phil Spencer response to people on Twitter, right? Let's ask him for the real well, number and see. What I mean, he says. there must be someone we can ask in general. Like, I mean, aren't you kind of in a position where you could potentially admit no higher up? I, they haven't publicly shown that number. Well, I mean, so. yeah, I mean, you'd have to get actual numbers, but you could just straight up ask, like, does it get to that point? And I'm sure you can get an answer. I, I guess I homework. can find out. I know okay. you, you, okay. you more than I'll, any of us. I, have... What do you mean I'm in that position? Where where am I supposed to be going? You mean like at my company? Like, see yeah, like, like, yeah, like someone at oh, your company. Okay. I mean, you're you're a director. Like someone at your company must know how those go down. I mean, if they were to ever buy your company or if your company were ever to buy someone else. I mean, I really want to go to our legal department and be like, yo, so like how do acquisitions <laughs> go down? <laughs> They're going to think like, like, wait, <laughs> is something going on? <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I just walk in with like the little like hip hop hand thing, like, "Hey, I'm rapping." How do those acquisitions go down? And they'll be like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, I, I'll see, like, find out. I'll report yeah. back. But yeah, I am curious though, because like this, this is a huge um, acquisition, right? Like I said, it's the largest in any industry in an all cash purchase. It's bigger than you know. It's certainly something to wake up to on a Tuesday morning. It's bigger than any um, Microsoft acquisition before it, especially in gaming. You know, like. Bethesda, they bought for seven point five billion by comparison, you know, and it's certainly bigger than what we see on the Nintendo side of things. 
you know, next level games and Molisoft when those were bought, it was, you know, pennies compared to $69 billion. I think next level was like 5 million or something. So like, what would, when you guys, like, what was your guys' reaction when you first heard this news of, you know, one of the largest third parties in the world going to Microsoft? Honestly, I didn't really have much of a reaction. Um, not because I didn't care. Like, I know it's a big deal, but um, I think as a gamer, or I don't even like that. That's it's like a weird thing to say. As as a consumer, <laughs> as, a as a consumer that buys games, um, I don't know. It, it it felt like like okay. It, it it literally felt like it just gave me like like okay, that's cool. Like um, that's pretty much it. There was it was like a non-reaction. I mean, I guess as like as someone that tried to read a little more into it. Uh, it felt like, all right, like maybe this was like a a good decision on Activision Blizzard's part because of everything that's going on for them. Maybe it's like the best thing that could have happened to them. But at least for the employees, yeah, yeah. And not to mention, like, yeah, like you know, um, Microsoft's getting all these IPs, but I guess I don't really know how much it's gonna. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't really think of anything negative about it. Not that I'm looking for something negative, but. I don't know. I guess I don't know how to feel about it. Um, I I guess it comes down to a lot of the IP that they're getting are just not IPs that I play often. Even Crash and Spyro. Right. Like, I loved them from back in the day, but I still haven't even played the Insane Trilogy. Mainly because I played the heck out of them on the PlayStation days that I never really wanted to revisit them that much. So, I guess it's kind of like that. That that's fair. I mean, yeah, not you don't need to have necessarily a, a hot take on it if it doesn't. Yeah, just if there's, if yeah. there's not a direct impact on you, then yeah, it's hard to be like, yeah, oh my definitely... god, I can't believe. Just curious know, to see King's how Quest out. is now owned by Microsoft. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that being said, or, yeah, or owning Tony Hawk's actual soul. I mean, the actual person. Yeah, I mean, crazy. yeah. But um, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> that being said, though, like, I mean, I am still, I'd still be interested to hear, like, you know, what for the ramifications there. Cause I'm sure there's maybe something that I'm overlooking that would actually make me go like, Oh, that's interesting. Cause as you can imagine, like right. that was like the talk of the office. Like everyone had like a mind meld about it. And I'm just like, I like, wow. I, I felt like I was alone in that. Everyone was like, Oh my God, did you see this? I, I still can't believe this is happening, but yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, Kevin, how, how do you, what was your take on it when you, when you saw it? Uh, insane. Honestly, probably right. <laughs> Activision. Activision Blizzard is. Uh, I, 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 I'm gonna. I'm just gonna say it. They're probably the biggest, uh, third party publisher, and to just get scooped up like that is uh, is pretty insane. And and I know it. it we just said it was a sixty-eight point seven billion acquisition. Um. But that's still insane. Like, like they bought oh, Microsoft yeah. just straight up buys the biggest third party publisher in yeah. gaming history. And and like er, when it ahead, came sorry. to Bethesda, there was a part of me that was like, "Oh, okay, Bethesda, Bethesda." Or no, they bought ZeniMax, right? Like ZeniMax was yeah. the yeah, company. technically ZeniMax, which owns Bethesda, and is yeah. Stuff, so when yeah. they bought ZeniMax, I was like, "Okay, that's that's." cool for them you know game pass is gonna is gonna have a a nice new library of games that's gonna be added and you know 
looking towards the future, Starfields and the next Elder Scrolls. Mm-hmm. This one it hits a little differently where I'm like, maybe super giant companies shouldn't be buying every single company out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, the, the thing that immediately jumped out at me when they first announced it was, oh, this is like when Disney bought Fox. But in a way, even bigger because Disney buying Fox was more, was more money, but this is more, this is the biggest cash purchase in corporate history. So like this is, I know I said that a few times, but this is in a way more of a record breaking deal than Disney buying Fox, which in of itself was a crazy deal to begin with. Um, but then like, I think the more I chewed on it, the more the Fox parallel really sort of struck a chord with me of, you know, like one big company buying another super mega company. And I think like, as I've kind of processed it over the last week or so, there's like a few different ways that I feel like it kind of parallels Fox. And, and like, there's really like three, I guess, levels of impact that's going to have, right? Like there's like a short term, a long term, and I guess kind of a longer term. Um, and I think you guys kind of touched on what like, falls into those terms a little like the immediate short term or perhaps um the perspective if you're viewing it in a bit more of a vacuum is it does seem like it's really positive to me like it the, like just you know just like how disney was able to use its resources and distribution methods to boost fox properties and access to them like microsoft can kind of do that with activision blizzard i mean kevin you were just saying you know how like bethesda's all their games came to um game pass like if you're a game pass user if you're one of the like 25 million people who subscribe to game pass the day the deal closed with bethesda a ton of their games and and you know it and all the Zenimax stuff showed up on on game pass like if they do that with with um you know with activision blizzard considering some of the great legacy or modern content like call of duties and tony hawks and spiros and crashes and you know, lesser properties like the Lost Viking on the Blizzard side, or even if you take into consideration the PC side of things, like the RTSs, like Warcraft, Starcraft, like having all those suddenly as part of a Game Pass subscription at your fingertips like that, you know, no additional action needed on your part as the end user, like that's actually kind of cool. If you're a guy that's paying 15 bucks and maybe you now pay 16, but you get like 55 more games at once, like that's kind of cool. And, you know, I always raise concerns about ownership and preservation of games and, and all that and subscription services don't make that difficult. And I still believe that that holds true to some degree. But the reality is if you bought into Game Pass and your library is suddenly this much more extensive, it's it's a win for you. Like, that that's awesome. That's like, you know, if Netflix suddenly, like, sucked up a whole nother studio's worth of content, just had it there all at once. And um, also, I think... I think um, Angel, you kind of touched on this, but like what it means for the employees at Activision Blizzard is potentially a win as well. Because, you know, we don't talk about the inner workings of non-Nintendo companies too much here, but it's become incredibly apparent that the work environment at Activision Blizzard is um, toxic, to say the least. You know, all those stories of harassment and gender-based discrimination and... You know, no employee, absolutely no employee, no person, never mind an employee, a person in general deserves any of that. But it's not easy to just leave a company in those situations, nor is it fair to have to be stuck at that company and have to put up with that stuff. Um, You know, especially when there's stories from the Wall Street Journal and others that paint the highest levels of the executive leadership, literally CEO Bobby Kotick himself, you know, they're choosing to consciously look the other way, sometimes partaking in some of the behavior themselves. They want to bury the story. That's a real story. Did you know that at one point uh, Kotick wanted to buy publications like Kotaku and PC Gamer to be able to spin the narrative that Activision isn't so bad? 
He was seriously considering that. It's nuts. It's barely believable, but apparently it's a real thing. He really wanted to buy publications and have them be like propaganda pieces for Activision. Um, we'll link to a story about it on the blog post for anyone who doesn't believe me, but it's, it's a real thing. Um, and, and to be clear, I don't think the buyout means you know a slam dunk on the front of employee well-being. There's still some weirdness around Activ- Activision's own leadership, like Kodak is staying through the transition period with this kind of weird, wishy-washy, golden parachute outcome for him, which... You know, that ain't great, Like, nor is the fact that he was able to secure this future for himself probably only because the scandals dropped Activision's stock to a level where Microsoft would be comfortable to buy it. And now he's turning something that she should have been like punished for or let go for into kind of a reward for himself, which is a little weird. And, you know, I'm sure Microsoft's culture isn't 100% perfect either, but all signs point to it at least being better for the employees and their well-being, like mentally and physically. So if... Um, you know, if Activision Blizzard employees are able to get quality of work life improvement out of this deal, that's great for them, 100%. Especially since, again, it's not like everyone, um, when stuck in these situations, can just quit their job and be totally fine, you know. They were dealt a really crappy hand of cards, and hopefully this gives a chance to at least get a few cards in their favor in that hand and sort of, you know, improve their situation. Um, plus, while this isn't an improvement as uh, nearly as important as their well-being, uh, one thing from our perspective and maybe for their just like mental health too, like Activision is known for consolidating its teams around only a few projects. You know, they want every franchise to be an annualized billion dollar thing. And they force studios like Vicarious Visions and Toys for Bob to go from making the types of genres they specialize in or want to make into support studios for the churn of Call of Duty and whatnot. Um, meanwhile, Phil Spencer of Microsoft is now saying that they're not as determined to keep piling studios onto a couple IPs. He specifically was telling the Washington Post they want to talk to developers about working on a variety of games from the from the vaults of Activision Blizzard that are of interest to them, uh, not just the same few. So, I mean, he even went as far as to name drop King's Quest, which I also just name dropped earlier, and Hexen of all things. So, like, those are personal favorites. He mentioned, like, it sounds like they're giving the developers a chance to kind of work on projects that are of more interest. So... For the employees themselves, this could be a wins on multiple levels. And I guess to sort of circle it back to us gamers, um, that's the other nice thing that could come out of this whole deal. You know, like between all of Microsoft's own IPs and all the acquisitions over the years, they have so many franchises and so many developers that can now mix and match or even fund new ones entirely. Like, you know, give Toys for Bob. They got praise for what? Crash and Spyro, right? Give them Banjo-Kazooie. Give them Conker. Like... You're not doing anything with the Microsoft. We have a team that cut its teeth on remakes of classic platformers. You have two IPs that could fit that mold very well. You know, they even have a track record of finding good pairings of their IPs with outside developers. Like, you know, like this is this is normal for them. You know, the Coalition did Gears of War, and they kind of picked them out of nowhere. Hopefully, uh, the Initiative and Crystal Dynamics does the same thing with Perfect Dark, Re- the Perfect Dark reboot, and you know, makes that successful um and now they have so many more things to pull from in in both directions so are there any i mean it sounds like the for angel there wasn't really for you any activision or blizzard franchise that you may want to see make a comeback but kevin were there any in in their wealth of properties ever where you were a fan of when you were younger or anything uh not necessarily i I would love to see uh tony hawk pro skater three plus four but Mm, that's mm -hmm. pretty much it That'd be cool. Yeah, and I think if they're, if if Phil Spencer's staying true to his thing about, like, taking people off these, like, piled-on projects, give it back to Vicarious Visions. They killed it with 1 and 2 from what I've heard. Like, 
I know they're kind of folded into Blizzard now, but they're still their own like unit within it, so it's possible. Um, yeah. I mean, personally, I have I have two that I think would be cool to see. Um, I want to see them do some wacky stuff with cars again. Like we know Microsoft is okay with branching out their driving games into kind of multiple directions. What? It's interesting. What? What like was that? Cars, the Disney franchise? No, no, like Wacky Racers. No, um, I, don't, I think Wacky Racers did have a game, but I think it was THQ. But no, um, what I mean is like bring back – I mean they already have you know, full-on simulation with Forza and arcade kind of but still sort of grounded Forza Horizons. Go a step further. Dip into the Blizzard Vault. Give us like some crazy off-roading arcade wild excite truck thing with like rock and roll racing or like bring back car combat with Vigilante 8. Like, Sony just did that with Destruction All-Stars, kind of, on PS5, that, you know, a car combat game of sorts. Like, if Microsoft were to lean in on that same thing, you know, expand the player count, maybe toy around with possibly a Battle Royale-style approach to Vigilante 8, maybe not 100 cars, but, you know, a few more than 8, that could be fun. That could be cool. That would be – it has a nostalgia play. It could feel kind of fresh in the genre. Like, I, that would be nice. So that would be one that would be cool to see, kind of pulling from, like, 90s Activision or early 2000s. Um, but the second one, I think – would be worth them looking into Sierra, like the brand Sierra. Like, I don't know if you remember, but at one point Sierra existed and they were a publisher and then Activision bought them and pretty much dropped everything Sierra related around the time that like Guitar Hero and Call of Duty were taking off. Uh, you know, when they were really starting to dip into that whole annualized franchise mindset, which let's be honest, it makes sense. They dropped Sierra at that point. None of their titles are good for annualized franchises, you know, but even, even the games that Sierra sort of absorbed through other companies, like when they were under Vivendi games, like Spyro and Crash, those were also dormant those years. So, like, actually just dropped it wholesale and started sort of picking up the pieces a little by bringing back Spashing, uh, Crash and Spyro. But if Microsoft's looking to, like, diversify their offerings, there's plenty of room for those other games from Sierra. I mean, we mentioned King's Quest a couple times. All the different quests from the 90s, like those point-click games there's nothing really like that on Game Pass. There's a couple indie games maybe, but that's a whole subgenre they could bring back. Or like, they could do something like, um, I don't know why this game sticks out in my mind, but Metal Arms from the GameCube is like this third-person shooter thing that Sierra made where you're this robot and you have like all these different weapons and it's kind of, like they could kind of reinvent that as like a kid-friendly third-person shooter to like live alongside Gears of War or something. Or, or you know, there's Geometry Wars. That started as a Sierra property, and that can make a good Ooh, mobile. Oh, I love Geometry Wars. Bring that back. Yeah, like there's, you know, they did I think three of them, right, including the one on the Wii. Um, why not bring that back as like a pick up and play, like quick download for five bucks or ten bucks, or make it a like I said, like a mobile game or something? There's so much stuff they're sitting on, and I think one of the things that Microsoft can do that they, that I'm sure is why they bought Activision is. They, they need to broaden their demographic to keep Game Pass going, right? Like, it's kind of like what we talk about the Switch, where it's like you start with the core gamers and you start expanding it out. Like, the footprint gets bigger as you bring in more genres and more people and that sort of thing. Microsoft's at that point. Like, they, on the mobile scene, are just buying their way in. They're buying a huge foothold um, with stuff like now owning Candy Crush and, and its developer, King, and, you know, even Activision's Call of Duty Warzone to kind of get the core gamer mobile audience. But, like... They're going to need the kids' games. They're going to need the casual games. They're going to need all this stuff. They're going to need the nostalgia plays. You know, there's all this stuff that, like, Game Pass doesn't have that this would all offer. And it's interesting that they're literally buying their way into these situations versus, like, developing additional games. Like, the Nintendo approaches to develop them. 
But nonetheless, they now have this whole huge library of things that can appeal to all types of audiences. And it, I have to imagine they plan to use it. And within that, some cool opportunities. Um, but that kind of brings us to where I guess I at least start to feel not as positive about what this buyout can mean, like the longer term impact. And I think this gets more into um, kind of Kevin, your point about super corporations buying each other out. Cause like you start to look at this purchase outside of the vacuum of what it means for specific individual games and access to those specific games for specific people who have a specific service, then it's, it's not so rosy because, cause that's the thing, right? Like all the cool game revival potential we are talking about what would we as switch owners get to actually play from that what would playstation owners get to actually play from that like even among the games that are right now cross-platform how many will microsoft decide to convert into xbox and game pass exclusives they said bethesda wouldn't necessarily be all exclusive and to some degree they are correct sure like free to play games like fallout shelter and elder scroll blades those continue to exist on switch and playstation but Starfield, that got exclusive real quick. Elder Scrolls Six, it's going to be too. And, you know, Activision, well, their their games are not just multi platform, but like multi platform with a ton of pull. Like in a funny bit of coincidental timing, the same morning the buyout was announced, um, the MPD group also put out their December and full year twenty twenty one sales charts. And for the sake of this discussion, I'll limit the Nintendo portions of this kind of mini Jason sales corner to just wow. Switch was the number one selling game in America in 2021. Who could have guessed? Uh, did I say game? I meant console. And uh, and what's the other key fact here? I guess, look, uh, Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl sold so well in six weeks that they're 2021's fourth bestseller across all platformers, uh, all platforms. So much for people thinking these remakes were lazy because they're clearly selling. Uh, now, if you want, like, the real meat and potatoes of this, uh, next episode... That's when Nintendo's own financial report comes out with uh, their own coverage of their holiday sales, so we'll dive deeper into it then. But for this discussion, what I want to draw attention to is the overall top 20 chart, where Call of Duty Vanguard and Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War were the two biggest selling games of the year. And if you then look at the PlayStation-only top 20 chart for 2021, Call of Duty Vanguard was the single best-selling game ahead of all other third-party games and Sony's own first-party games. There are three... Apparent, well, Vanguard's apparently selling weaker, but still the number one selling game in the industry and on what is Xbox's most uh, direct competitor. Yeah, it's still somehow huge. In fact, there are three Call of Duties on the PlayStation Top 20. Modern Warfare's remake from 2019 is still on there. And if you compare that with something like Nintendo's chart, you know, Nintendo's chart, it's also it also has Evergreens. There's a lot of Evergreens, but they're all Nintendo's own games. Like 19 of the Switch's 20 games, bestsellers in 2021, were first party. The only game that made the list that wasn't was Monster Hunter Rise. But Call of Duty, like, that's a PlayStation Evergreen. And Microsoft being able to pull the rug out on that and make it Xbox exclusive is kind of a huge risk for Sony. Um, now, Bloomberg has reported that the next three Call of Duties will also come to PlayStation. But that three number sounds like it could just be a contractual thing. I mean, specifically, Bloomberg said that the agreements were struck uh, for those before Microsoft was in the picture, and they're just honoring the agreement. So what happens at the fourth Call of Duty? And, you know, one could argue that maybe Warzone would stay accessible on PlayStation, kind of like how Bethesda's free-to-plays remain accessible. You know, it's a similar move to how every company uses a free-to-play as a point of entry to an IP to get you to then check it out on a more dedicated platform. You know, we see it with Nintendo and its mobile games. 
uh, Sony with those belated PC ports that interestingly are always timed within the same year as the sequel, then arriving exclusively on a PlayStation console. Or even Microsoft, you know, dabbling with select tiles on Steam, but then trying to get you to go further into their ecosystem. Like, everyone does it. So let's say Warzone stays. And then Microsoft can proudly say, we still support Call of Duty on PlayStation, because here's Warzone. But if the main Call of Duty is leave PlayStation ultimately... It's also been reported that Sony is now looking to combine PlayStation Plus and PlayStation Now into a proper Game Pass uh, competitor, like a a service of their own. And as we know from the streaming wars in terms of television and movies and stuff, you need content to compel people to buy into your service. So Sony has their first-party games. They have some third-parties. But let's say, like I said, Call of Duty leaves PlayStation. They're losing their single biggest, multiple big sellers on their platform. Like they, 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 they need something to counter with at that point. Like if you're losing your biggest seller, how do you get people to use your service if the one game they want to use isn't there? And that means, for better or worse, we could very well see an arms race of buyouts of existing major pu- publishers. Like Activision could be the first domino here. And you may think I'm crazy for saying that, that like Microsoft and Sony are just going to start buying out every company. But, like, the arms race is kind of already happening. You may recall how Microsoft started buying developers um, a few years back to fold into Xbox Game Studios. You know, like, so Double Fine and Ninja Theory, and they just kept doing it. And they have over a dozen now, not even counting what's on the Zenimax Bethesda side. So just 12 or 13 that they bought one by one. And it's like, okay, so they're doing that. But then guess what happened? Sony started doing it too. They went from basically buying no studios to buying five of them in a single year in 2021 and they've since rebranded uh, SIE as PlayStation Studios much like there's Xbox Studios uh, they're going tit for tat and for better or worse the writing seems on the wall that now that big publishers are what you need to beef up your content offerings for your service and your platform everyone's going to start buying big publishers so I don't know I mean it could be a pessimistic view but like it seems the it seems like that's the, the, the flow of what's going to happen here so with that in mind are there any publishers that do seem like good for Sony? I could think of a couple, but I'm curious if there's any that jump out to you guys as like the right fit for PlayStation. Good for Sony that they don't already own. Some of the most we're talking they like didn't publishers. already own. No, yeah, publishers. Oh, yeah. um, yeah, you know, like like Square. Uh, is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, even though I, I know, like, you know, Final Fantasy, Kingdom Hearts, like, I know they can appear on all platforms, but I still always think of them as Sony games that just so mm-hmm. happen to be on other platforms instead of them just being, you know, just gen- general games. So, yeah, I, I could see that. Honestly, Capcom, to some extent, just with, like, mm. how much they've worked with, like, at this point, Street Fighter and Sony are pretty much like the same entity i mean all the street fighter 5 existed on it. with each other yeah and and honestly like you know they've had big history with monster hunter as well they've had some history with i mean resident evil is associated with them it's kind of hard for me not also not to think of playstation when i think of capcom as well so i mean mm-hmm. i know that's a developer but not a publisher but yeah no capcom's a publisher they release their own stuff oh i guess they're both yeah but yeah, so yeah, yeah but and, Cap- and so I, I thought say Capcom. I think that'd be like like a crazy one, but I would also be like, okay, I, I, I could see that. That makes sense. I think the other piece that you kind of that I didn't when you said Street Fighter just dawned on me is they just bought Evo Sony, right? That's like they, true. They're, they're yeah, like, it, it so if they like, own Evo. 
it works it's even better. Too, it's that, too yeah. synergetic, and I hate using the word synergy, but it's too synergetic for them to not have Street Fighter too. You know? Yeah, I agree. It almost makes too much sense. I mean, the I, mean, I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no! I was just gonna make. A, just gonna, a, 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 go I was gonna make a dumb joke about because if if it'd be like whatever you say, like dumb of them not to have Street Fighter two, but I'm like, don't you mean Street Fighter six or five? But yeah. Anyway. Oh, that that would have been that would have been quality. Ram Nintendo stamp of approval on that one. Um, but yeah, I, I do think Capcom actually does make a lot of sense. And Square Enix, I mean, even you know, even in li- let's say they keep Final Fantasy fourteen as this kind of game you can play on any platform that has it, that can be their like foot in the door to get people to then want to try other Final Fantasies on where else PlayStation, the only place you can find you know the next remakes, the next new single player entries, the the world building of, of Final Fantasy outside of this one online game. Like it, it could work. I mean, Kevin, are there any that jump out to you as possibilities? First one that came up uh, was uh, was Atlas, but that's Sega oh. now, and I don't think uh, <laughs> by Sega. I don't no. I don't, could think, buy Sega. I don't think Sega. I don't, no, I don't think Sega's a good fit for Sony, uh, considering how. I mean, Sega's biggest franchise is Sonic, for better or worse. Um, and that yeah. has always been like multi-platform. So, I think Sony Sega, buying Sega ignore... would actually be would be like really really bad for if... the consumer. I think. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, I'm just thinking from the company because if you ignore Sonic, I mean Yakuza. Granted, Yakuza's director just left to go form his own studio with NetEase. But either way, Yakuza, uh, all the personas and everything under Atlet, like Sega could work. Like Sonic would be odd man out. And I don't think that uh, Sega would want to necessarily do it in part because Sonic is blowing up as a franchise right now, like as an IP of its own. But crazier things have happened. Have happened. Um, there were rumblings at one point that Warner Brothers was looking to sell off its games division. I think they ultimately decided to keep it. But if Sony could convince them to part with it, like from Sony's perspective – being the console that has the cinematic games and the Spider-Man games and being able to go, oh, we also have the other cinematic games around Harry Potter and Batman, and they're all exclusive to PlayStation. Like, that that kind of fits PlayStation Studios' whole focus really well. And then, you know, stuff like Mortal Kombat. Like, Eleven was the best-selling entry. It has Kratos' DLC. Like, it 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 lines up, too, if, if Sony wanted to pull the trigger. Um, the fact that we're able, I think, to rattle off three of the four of the biggest game publishers out there as possibilities even if they don't make perfect sense like sega like the fact that we were able to go well there are some games that work like there that's kind of scary right because like it brings us back to nintendo like in a in a way at least because you know how first of all how nintendo works like first party wise and what folks buy we're kind of already at the point of what sony and microsoft are going to be competing to do like if you want mario zelda whatever you have to get a switch if you want call of duty or madden you buy a system from the other guys but i think the concern here is now like the squeeze that would happen on everything else like if this arms race goes on between microsoft and sony you know what does that mean for nintendo because if you look back to the end of nintendo's last fiscal year in may uh, we learned that the Switch had 36 million sellers in its lifetime so far. Uh, most were first party, of course, but 14 of them weren't. So what happens to those 14 games if all the third parties start getting snatched up by other platform holders? You know, Even as it stands, Activision going to Microsoft could mean no more Crash, no more Tony Hawk, 
maybe some uh, games that have additional sales potential will still show up. Like I'm thinking, you know, if I was Microsoft and I could build a platform out of selling accessories for Guitar Hero, like plastic guitars, or I could sell, you know, Skylander figurines, sure, I'd put those on other consoles because that's, you know, you're only going to be able to sell so many figurines to how many people have Xboxes, but if you can basically double dip on the accessories, okay, sure. So maybe those would still come to Nintendo and be on Switch. But a lot of high-profile Switch games not by Nintendo will essentially disappear. Like, let, let's say Square Enix is bought by Sony. Like, just hypothetically, as a counter to Microsoft, they buy Square Enix. Wait, wait. There goes, there goes your octo... What? Okay, I'm ready. Okay, you're ready? Good. All right, Grace, here we go. If Sony were by Square Enix, no more Final Fantasies on Nintendo, no more Octopaths or Triangle Strategies or Chocobo GPs. Like, Square Enix actually pops, pumps out a lot on Nintendo and works hand-in-hand hand with them to publish a lot. Like, Octopath, Triangle Strategy, Bravely Default, all those are, like, co-marketed by Nintendo. Square Enix gets bought by Sony. There goes a huge part of the JRPG library for Nintendo, at least going forward. And to compound this, let's say you're, like, a new or small publisher who wants in, right? Like, if I'm the platform holder and I make content exclusive to my service that is so vast and covers so many types of gameplay that I spend billions of dollars to make it happen, literally paid my way into a first-party lineup with the market power and performance of Nintendo's homegrown efforts. If I've done all that, what incentive do I have to make it easy for your game to coexist on my service and someone else's competing service? Like, this is exactly what happens with streaming, right? Like, if you look at streaming, very few to no shows are available across multiple streaming services at the same time or at all. And in the past, um, apparently movie studios tried to do this exact same move that's now happening in consoles. They tried to own their theaters. I was reading an article on The Verge about, uh, like, monopolistic practices, and they discussed a court case in the 40s where Paramount Studios wanted, or maybe already did, uh, own batches of theaters, like a chain of theaters, and they would book back-to-back blocks in the theater of only their own movies. So if every movie company did this with their chains, where do the smaller movies go? Like how many newcomer studios like A24 or whatever could gain momentum and make enough money? That's kind of conundrum. And ultimately the U.S. blocked this from happening and, and you know, from reaching a point where theaters could continue to own um, – I mean studios could continue to own theaters. And they basically said, listen, they need to be separate. You can't have the distribution and the content of the distribution. But subscription services – are now digitally in that same situation. The theater is now a service. And, you know, Microsoft and Sony, if they continue escalating the arms race, I don't see how it would be any different than what's going on with streaming or what happened with theaters in the 40s or whatever. And to, like, really make it more of a tangible example here, let's touch on the recent announcement of the KO the Kangaroo revival. We're dragging this poor guy into this. Do you guys remember KO from the Dreamcast era at all? Kangaroo with boxing gloves? Yes. Kind of. Vaguely. Yeah, he kind of, like, from what I recall, because I remember, like, I almost bought a Dreamcast back then. Like, I was really like, oh, this is really cool. And I remember seeing, looking at KO and being like, oh, it's kind of like the Dreamcast version of Crash Bandicoot. I don't have a PlayStation. That'd be a cool way to play Crash Bandicoot. Um, and also, like, the, the one new that had one. The commer- hmm. Is it the one that had the commercial with, like, Sonic and Crash in a hospital bed, but they were all bandaged up, but you'd know it's supposed to be them, but it's, like, not really them. I think so, yeah. I think he had the tail end of the Tude era of marketing games. Ah. Where you're like, yeah, because he beat him up with his boxing gloves. Um, I think. But yeah, the game, honestly, it's funny that oh, they like, no, put I'm Sonic thinking of someone it. else then. I'm thinking, of, thinking of? Some, I'm thinking of something the Tasmanian Devil. No, or something. Oh, are you thinking of Ty? Ty? Yeah, 
Spotify. Ty, the Tasmanian Tiger. There you go. Yeah, because he had a who, by the way, on. also has been rebooted and is on Switch. Dude, I don't know. There's something about this era of of platforms. Like they're all getting rebooted. Ty got rebooted. Ko's getting rebooted. I hate. To, I I, I kind of want to say Gex should be rebooted next. Honestly, I know Gex is a meme now. Gex the Gecko, but like. Enter the Gecko, Gex 64 was actually pretty good. So, like, if they wanted to reboot it, I'm not going to complain. I mean, the ge- I think that game was, for me, kind of an entry point into, like, meta and parody humor. That Like, obviously, all that and stuff I watched as a kid, too, and that did a lot. But I feel like, like, I remember being, like, eight or nine, like, whoa, like, they, it's Bugs Bunny. Or, oh, it's a James Bond thing. And, like, really being into that. Like, they brought back Gex. I'm just saying. Anyway, sorry. That was a weird tangent. Uh, my point is, yeah, so KO... Um, he has his boxing gloves, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it actually looks like kind of a fun game from the trailer. Like if you're a, if you're a platforming fan with a Switch and you want sort like sort of a second level, deeper cut of the genre after going through all the biggies, like it seems like it could be fun when it arrives summer. Like the production values look pretty good in the trailer. But if I'm Microsoft and I already own Crash, Banjo, Conquer, Spyro, even freaking Blinks the Time Sweeper or whatever. And I have total control over a platform of millions of players who are happy with those experiences and will keep paying whether or not this lower profile, smaller scale KO the Kangaroo shows up. What incentive would I have to let this outside studio, Tape Multimedia, make their game available on my service and simultaneously on a PlayStation Now service? Why would I not give them the ultimatum, it's Game Pass only or no Game Pass at all? My bases are covered with all those other uh, IPs and properties if they say no. It's fine. So, like, what? how does that work? So let's reverse it real quick. Now I'm tape multimedia, and I'm going to explore my other options after Microsoft told me, you know, it's us or no one. So what if I then go to PlayStation, and now I'm told the same thing because Sony has Jackson uh, Daxter and Ratchet and Clank and maybe an IP I'm forgetting that doesn't have and in its name. But let's just say they give me that answer too, or they buy a couple other companies and, like, somehow they turn Balan Wonderland into an amazing platformer. Uh, they're going to give me the same answer what's left at that point? I go to Nintendo, I go to PC, presumably, but is there enough of a guaranteed audience to justify the cost of being on only those two platforms when I want or perhaps need for business reasons, the market reach only possible by being on all four platforms? Or do I just take the check from Microsoft and Sony, or Microsoft or Sony, I mean, uh, with their stipulations that, you know, we're only on one of these two systems, but at least I have a smaller pool of guaranteed money to work with. And this doesn't even account for the fact that if Microsoft and Sony become the two biggest games in town, they can start to decide, well, hey, we're going to need to pay out a little less per game to our developers on our services under the guise of, I don't know, increased server costs or whatever. Like, where are these developers going to turn? What are they going to do at that point? Like, essentially, what we're talking here is a potential monumental shift from the current setup where platform holders are now paying extra to secure games that's timed exclusives to one where they're perhaps ultimately offering less money to each studio, not under their direct control because they have all the power, which will ultimately make it harder for anyone outside these behemoths to really gain traction in the industry. That's kind of the potential long-term risk here. And if you want to go deeper into the capitalism of it all, that brings us to my third perspective, if you will, the longer-term impact of what Microsoft is potentially doing here. And it starts with a buzzword we all love to hate the metaverse so we kind of poked at the i'm not a big believer of this metaverse thing but we did and we kind of poked at i know kevin you and i talked about a little in a random non-tendo 
after Facebook's uh, renaming to Meta. But now with like the impact it could have with in-gaming and specifically in how the third-party landscape may change and what that means in terms of what Nintendo has access to, it kind of feels like it's suddenly pretty relevant to random Nintendo. So let's say, and maybe I am, let's say I'm a little extreme with how I think the platform holders may sort of seize additional money and power by changing their rates and denying games without exclusivity and whatever. Like maybe I'm pessimistic, sure. Maybe this arms race won't reach that point. But while Phil Spencer was busy talking about what Activision means for Game Pass as a service, Microsoft's CEO, in other words, Spencer's boss, uh, Satya Nadella, he was making some really broad brushstroke comments about how the acquisition is very important to the metaverse, etc., etc., and he kept saying that gaming will, quote, play a key role in the development of metaverse platforms. And I mean, I don't think he's wrong. He's not wrong. The whole case for a metaverse, as much as it's being shoved down our throats, is it's reliant on creating you know, engaging enough experiences that you'll be able to get folks to go into those experiences and then continually cough up money within them. Thus, it's a good business move for you. And I think that's what Facebook's whole meta thing seems to be missing is the part where it's actually engaging in something you want to do isn't really there. There's talking about like, once you're there, here's the things that can happen that we can make money off of. They don't really talk about why you want to be there. But for Microsoft, they're known, you know, they've known games for decades and absorbing the team who made World of Warcraft by buying, you know, as part of the Blizzard purchase, like, Arguably, World of Warcraft is a mini metaverse on its own. That's going to give them some further experience to work with. If they want to start looking at like virtual events or how concerts could work, they also own Guitar Hero and whatever devs that Activision are left from those days. Uh, it's sort of like how Epic bought Harmonix specifically to flesh out Fortnite's music activities. So like they kind of had the building blocks. And if you couple those thoughts with something that EA did as it bought up its own studios over the last few years... EA made a unified game engine. They made Frostbite, and Frostbite over time has become the de facto game engine for them that powers everything from Madden to Battlefield to Need for Speed to PGA Golf. I think even Star Wars Squadrons is on it. And those are all very different games, but they're all the same underlying tech. So now, if you couple that coupling of thoughts with the IP ownership situation in something like, let's say, Fortnite, uh, where they keep adding collaborative properties, but for every skin or item or even appearance, many of which are, of course, monetized, they have to pay out a licensing fee to the other companies. If you start putting all these pieces together, I think you may see where I'm going here. If Microsoft has the resources, has the assets, has the underlying technology, they can turn any number of games they want into something more deeply connected as they start building out new entries in those franchises. It actually kind of reminds me of a dumb tweet from Linkin Park's Mike Shinoda a few weeks ago. And this was not a good take, to be clear. But he was saying, like, NFTs are really cool. <laughs> uh, sure. But NFTs are really cool because of the potential to buy an item in one game and be able to move it between games. And he was citing how it'd be, you know, with NFTs, you'll be able to buy something in a game like Fortnite and then use it in a game like Valorant. And people came at him. And to reemphasize, this is not a good take by any means. And I say that as a huge fan of his, but like, it doesn't account for different game engines. It doesn't account for different assets. It doesn't account for different, really everything, like how you get these companies to work together. Like none of it makes sense. Never mind the fact that you don't need an NFT to have a custom item that can be cross-communicated. Your me could show up in multiple Wii games back in the day. It didn't need an NFT to do that. And it was your me. So like the thing's kind of a dumb take, but now here's Microsoft and this is how it ties back. Now here's Microsoft putting all this stuff under their one roof. So what's to stop them hypothetically from doing exactly what Fortnite does, except what Mike Shinoda proposed without the NFT aspects, without having to pay out royalties for properties or license fees or for technologies or engines used or whatever. Like obviously this is very conceptual and heady at the moment, 
But, like, think about it. What if, by simply absorbing so much of the game industry, you just control the whole experience, top to bottom? You know, something bought in one game could benefit you in another, or your achievements from one game somehow impact what you do in the world of another, and all of that is part of the subscription you pay Microsoft for directly. And it kind of all goes back to that parallel of Disney I said at the start of this whole long spiel. Like, they bought Fox, they bought Star Wars, they bought Marvel, they beefed up their IPs, they used purchase power to overcome licensing issues, they became as much a content creator as now an owner of their own direct delivery system with Disney+. And in response, you've got folks like Warner now merging with Discovery just to be able to match the breadth of content on a unified single platform of their own that can compete with Disney+. Meanwhile, you've got, you know, in the corner, Netflix doing their own weird little thing, and they're still raking in tons of money by having done this whole shows exclusive to their platform thing at a much higher level before anyone else did. You know, even at the expense of now losing licensed shows to these other providers who have since decided to mimic the Netflix concept and take back their content to do it, like Netflix is still thriving because they built out so many IPs in their favor. So ultimately, what I'm arguing here is that all of this is what Activision's purchase points to as the future of gaming or where gaming is going, I guess you could say. Like the delivery method on one level is going to be subscriber services like Game Pass, but with microtransactions and in-app purchases and gaming being a whole interactive thing, it's also potentially, for better or worse, going to be this whole metaverse thing of interconnected experiences. So Microsoft, with this purchase, is arguably prepping for both those realities and essentially trying to buy their way into like the IP-driven reason to use those services. You know, in the same way that Nintendo, I guess the Netflix of this scenario, has had its own IPs dominate and drive its platform well before its competitors, or everyone had exclusives, but at a higher level than its competitors, um, much like Netflix. Uh, you know, that's kind of where we're at. And, and like Netflix, Nintendo and its fans, us, are likely going to have to watch as a lot of additional content we're used to having access to is now going into the walled gardens of other guy, of the other guys because they're trying to catch up to that sort of IP-driven mindset. So that's kind of the that's kind of where I think this is all going. That's where I think the industry's heading. And then we're going to see a lot more uh, exclusive content that's walled off, and not through purchases and temporary exclusive exclusivity, but by just outright buying it and bringing it into their own fold. So. Make of that what you will. It'll be an interesting time in gaming. And I don't know if you guys necessarily agree or disagree, but um, that that's my take, at least. I'm curious if you guys feel otherwise, of course. But I'm going to adopt yeah. everything you said as my own as well. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And Kevin, I don't know if your hangover made, helped you get through that, but yeah, it's it's uh, that's kind of where I'm at, at least. It sounds very doom and gloom, doesn't it? It sounds very what? Yeah. Juvenile? Doom, doom and gloom. gloom. Oh, doom, doom and gloom. gloom. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, Microsoft well, does own Doom now, so. That's that true, they do own Doom. And not only that, but they're also very known for buying their way to the top of stuff. I mean, people jokingly put that money sign on the S of Microsoft when they do MS. It has its roots. They have mon mon monopolistic practices in the 90s. So... And that's not a knock against the content quality, to be clear. I'm not saying these games won't be good. I'm just saying it's 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 uh, consolidation of power, essentially. In yeah, that used to be much more uh, that, accessible. Even as someone that never played Halo, like I downloaded the new Halo game and I played a few rounds of it just for fun because you know it's free, and a lot of coworkers are playing it. And I mean, I had fun with it. It was you know, felt quality. I could see myself playing it some more, but I mean, I still suck at it. 
I think it was definitely a liability. I we definitely almost lost because of me, but I guess everyone else was just that good. But yeah. And and that's in and of itself kind of a tricky thing about these whole these situations, right? Like it's not like the contest could be bad. It's not like the game learn could be fun. It's not like, you know, like Halo Infinite's getting great reviews. It's probably the best Halo they could have done, from what I've gathered, except the matchmaking I've heard is kind of wonky. But, um, you know, like Forza Horizons, the new one's getting great reviews. Like, the content's good. The question is just, like, what could we potentially miss out on in terms of other content from other providers if they don't have a way to, like, get a foot in the door? And I think that's ultimately, like, the whole Apple situation too, right? Like, everyone's saying, oh, the App Store and Apple is, like, monopolistic and, you know, they have too much control. It's like... Yeah, but it's not like the apps are bad. It's not like the experiences are bad. We just don't know what else we could be getting. And that's kind of where it gets tricky and where these companies probably have some leverage is the fact that, like, everything's good quality. And, like, Microsoft's, like, honestly killing it in terms of releases lately. So, like, all this for them is if you're an Xbox player and you're okay with being in that ecosystem, the same way I'm cool with how Apple does their app store and, like, whatever, like, that's awesome if you're in that, in that bubble. It's just, you know, if you try and get into the bubble as a developer, then then you hit a wall, potentially. Bubbles and walls. Man, these metaphors are falling apart. Um, but yeah, we'll see where it goes, gaming. I mean, Nintendo's kind of... The nice thing about being Nintendo fans is it's kind of its own weird sideshow. So, you know, kind of like, like I was saying with, with Netflix. Like, all Netflix did was um, end up losing some content, but still pumped out great original content and at a higher capacity and a higher frequency. Nintendo might lose some third-party content, but they're expanding their studio. They're buying out small developers to work with. Like, they... We'll still get a healthy drumbeat of releases. It just might be missing a couple things we're used to. So we'll see where it goes. Um, was there anything else you guys wanted to talk talk about today? Now that I've talked for too long, not off the top. Not of really. My head. Well, that's fair. I mean, th- this turned into a pretty like conceptual episode that moved well beyond just like Nintendo's own activities, but. Um, we'll, we'll rein it in for next episode because I think next episode, like if you prefer the more Nintendo focused perspective or a little more like easy breezy conversation, we're going to have that next episode. It'll be a good one when it arrives. It, it comes on, I think, Super Bowl Sunday, so February 13th. Um, and we'll have our takes on Pokemon Legends Arce- oh, yeah, Arceus. Um, that, huh? I have. I haven't played enough to be able to talk about this episode because it's only been, you know, out for like two days as it was recording, but yeah. I mean, let me tell you right now, right off the bat, it has a mode where all you do is take, and you're in a, fo- a photo studio with a Pokemon you're choosing, and you just pose it and yourself, and you take photos together. Game of the year. Me and Badoof. Oh, it's so great. they actually carried that over to um, this game, too? That's interesting. What do you mean, carried it over? From what? The previous games? Like, the last three? They had a photo they, studio where you could literally, like, pose with the Pokemon? Like, on a park bench? Yeah. Or, like, have them sleep and you sleep? Oh. Yeah, like in X and Y, especially, um, there was like a studio you could go to, which was hilarious because um, you could basically make little videos, like music, like almost like hype videos for you and your Pokemon. And oh, I, remember, I like, do remember that. And yeah. I remember like always yeah. like having a ton of fun with it because uh, you could also make um, you can make the Pokemon silhouetted, and he saw that if you get a what's his name, a crocodile. Crocodile's pre-evolution, you know, you have the little alligator. He evolves into, like, pretty much the alligator standing up, and then he turns into a big red one. Well, the middle one, when he's standing up and silhouetted, looks a little phallic. Actually looks very, very phallic. And (laughs) you can imagine what you can do with that. 
You know what I love? I, I, that I have to see if I have those videos saved. Um, but yeah, those are hilarious. Please, yes, please send it if he does. I was gonna say I love that if for anyone who like true who like was a trooper through my spiel about Activision and Microsoft, they were rewarded with that little anecdote. What a perfect cherry on top of of an episode. <laughs> um. But yeah, we'll be talking about uh, Pokemon Legends next episode, and they, I don't think they're I don't think you could silhouette the Pokemon, so there won't be any Phallic symbols in this one. Um, but yeah, the game is so far pretty good, and I'll have deeper thoughts there. Um, plus, we're gonna have Nintendo's, like I said during during this episode, we're gonna have Nintendo's financial report. It comes out this coming week, so we'll see how their holiday was. We'll see how big Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl ended up being, even though we already know it's, it was huge. Uh, so yeah, to make sure you don't miss it or miss the possible random Nintendo that may happen between now and then. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Ram Nintendo. You can subscribe to us on all the apps: uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Amazon Music, Spotify. We haven't pulled a Neil Young yet on Spotify. We're still on Spotify. Um, what else are we on? Yeah, you're gonna tell me all about that later because I saw something happen, but I have no idea what's going on. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in after we're done recording. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned, Angel. And for and for the rest of you, stay tuned in two weeks. No, but uh, yeah, we're on all the apps. And you can also follow us individually on Twitter. I'm JSR7. Angel is Wero, W-E-I-R-O underscore O. Kevin is KVN Gomi. Um, Kevin, I- I'm done talking. Final word? Don't drink ever. Like, just don't. It's the worst. I want to die.